All right, well, good morning, everyone. Because our kids are coming back early, sorry about the shortened time with this. Um, I do think it's funny. So on the lowest Sunday, not just of play, but all Christians this Sunday, yours truly gets, has got to preach this time and then this time last year. So maybe that tells me the fourth story in person. Anyways. We're going to be looking through this Mark chapter 1 passage, and as you've already noticed, this doesn't even include the birth of Mary. So, Merry Christmas, everybody. We are going to be integrating that all in here, but I want to start out with a story. So, when I was 14 years old, I got a four-wheeler. Did anybody have a four-wheeler growing up? One person. I inherited it from my grandfather when he passed away. It was awesome. We had a neighborhood that was behind the neighborhood. There were all these trails. Well before I got my four-wheelers, somebody had um, ridden the dirt bikes and four-wheelers, and there was like specific rented-out trails that we got to drive down. Miles and miles of these trail trails out in the middle of cornfields and pastures. What we noticed after time, though, you know, you ride your four-wheeler and dirt bike over and over. These trails got deeper and deeper in, and so then it became muddy. And when it rained, these would get very, very muddy nasty and even your four-wheeler there might might get might get stuck in these and so one day i remember now i don't remember the reasons why i'm about to tell you i'm always somebody i want to be i want to follow a path we talked about in our group a second ago i'm somebody that i, I like the goal to end. i want to continue on with it i don't like necessarily starting new things or blazing a new trail necessarily but today apparently i didn't want to get all night and i don't know why maybe i was doing something later on but on this day in particular, I decided I was going to drive my four-wheeler, not on the rented out pass. I remember it being muddy, so maybe that was it. I decided to drive it through the pasture. And I knew what it might happen, right? There's things you can't see. The grass was very high. And luckily, I, I was a fairly responsible 15, 16-year-old. I didn't just, like, gun it all the way. But here's what I remember about that day. I'm just riding my four-wheeler. And then it stops. And I fly off the front end. And I bend the handlebars. Now, ironically, I didn't actually get hurt too bad. I just remember being like, she had some bruises. But I hit a log that I couldn't see. And my four-wheeler, surprisingly also, like was drivable afterwards, except the handlebar was all broken um, and bent. But it stopped, right? Because I couldn't see it. I couldn't see what was in front of me, right? So often as people... We want to be able to see and control what's in front of us, right? What's happening right before us. We get nervous when we go through the pastures and we don't, at least I do. Maybe you don't, those who like lazy things. Maybe you like just going through and not knowing what's happening. But for me, that was a scary thing. So I don't think I ever did that again. All right. So if you have your um, handout, Follow along with me. We're gonna not we're not gonna read through the whole passage again, because it is a long passage. By the way, this is one of the most dense passages that we've had in our narrative lectionary. We get so much of Jesus in these 20 verses. It would take us a year to really do an adequate job of preparing a sermon that we're gonna hopefully look at. So I'm gonna pick just a few things out that are important things for us today. So Let's start at the very beginning here. It says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A little bit of background on this. We call this, you know, this gospel Mark. Mark um, is probably the one that took it down, but it most likely historians tell us that it's probably Peter's first-hand account that Mark is documenting. 
right? Uh, historians do. There's some disagreement, but more of them say that it's it's Peter's probably firsthand account. What's interesting is Matthew, out of the Gospels, there's four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have your synoptic Gospels, three of them that are really close together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But even then, Matthew and Mark are extremely similar in the stories they tell, right? Except for Matthew gives us a genealogy at the very beginning and the birth narrative. Mark skips over that, right? He just starts out with the prophecy. And so let's read verse 2. It says, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah... See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. We're going to talk about this morning, the wilderness. Because this, this Greek word that we get translated to wilderness is like four or five times in this very short amount of verses here. Wilderness. Even in the prophecy. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Before Jesus came on board, a good Jew would be looking for the Messiah. Somebody that would be the Redeemer, that would be a king. Some believed when Jesus came, and some didn't. We know, we know the stories. Think about Palm Sunday. They were anticipating an earthly king to come on, right? They had all these prophecies from the prophets of old, and in, in, in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And yet, some still didn't understand it. Some didn't get it, right? It's because they had a certain conception of what Jesus would look like when he did come. Let's keep reading. John the Baptizer appeared. Where did he appear? In the wilderness. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside, all the people of Jerusalem, were going out to him. Now, in the Greek, yes, it's all the people of Jerusalem. No, of course, not everybody came from the from the countryside and from the city of Jerusalem. But this is telling us there was a lot of people. This just wasn't a few people. So, okay, if you're a, trying to be a visual person with me to try to put together where these places are, see if you can follow them. Pretend like the Jordan River is like the Atlantic Ocean over here. It's a river, but think about this body of water. Everything to the west of it is where we're talking about in this story and in much of the Gospels. So you have Jerusalem and you have the Judean countryside right to the west. North of that is Nazareth, Capernaum, um, Galilee. Those areas are north, right? So that is your poorer areas of of this known world at the time. Galilee, Nazareth. Places like that. That's the poor areas. If you had a middle class or wealthier area, it would be in the Judean countryside and in parts of Jerusalem, right? You get that. So I think it's ironic that the people who were coming to John were actually from these at least middle class, possibly area, to a person that probably took a vow, John, of poverty. We see this here by how he is clothed with camels here, a leather belt eating locust and honey. Now, this sounds very odd to us, believe me, does. If you encountered somebody like this, it may have been very odd for somebody back then, too, but there is some history behind this. There are like a group or sect of people that were this way that took a, a vow of poverty, right? So what John does here, people are coming out, even in this situation, wealthier, things are going great, and yet they are coming out because the good news is good, right? 
It is good. And it's proclaiming, as he proclaims a baptism of a repentant, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is deep stuff. This is you giving up control of your life. This is real change happening. Repentance in scripture, we, we hear the word, it, it kind of becomes a churchy word, but it's a changing of your mind. It's a literal in the Old Testament especially. To repent is you're going one direction, you stop, and you literally go the exactly opposite direction, right? To repent, to change. People are coming out because of this good news. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 7, he said, He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Other, uh, we get this same story. It also says, and fire. But what's important here is that John is saying, I, I'm not, I'm preparing the way just as the prophet Isaiah proclaimed and said. I'm not it. So we get this said, right? The prophecy by Isaiah, it's in the wilderness. Where does John appear? In the wilderness. Right? And then we get verse 9. And this is going to get very interesting very quickly with us here. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. That's all the descriptions we have of Jesus. Think of Jesus as starting his ministry about 30 years old. We get no details except he came from Nazareth of Galilee in this gospel. That's it. We get more details about John and what he looked like and what he ate. But Jesus, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. That's it. No birth narrative. But I think I think the writer here of Mark does this for a reason. And was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart. The idea of creation and, and what the world was, the heavens and the earth, was very different than what we see with our science and technology these days. A, a good first century Jew would have seen the world separated, right? This firmament, this, this things in between. The heavens are way up above, the earth is down here. So you get these this language of things being torn apart. Think about the curtain and the temple being torn. This is very, um, I don't know, something to be ripped apart, to be torn apart. This is serious language here. The heavens are being torn apart, and the spirit descending. Imagine that, as a dove. So you get the, the language being torn apart, and then as a dove, kind of a calm. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Now, I've seen too many um, TV or videos about this. That What I see in this, and I didn't get this until I was researching this passage. All I hear is this booming voice that everybody around would have heard. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. I don't know if you think of that when you hear this. The Greek here... It's not that at all. The language here is, Greek is very acute, way more acute than English is, meaning you get a lot of understanding just by what the words are. We miss some of this in English, so I'm sorry if I keep going with that, but it is so rich. Um, this is the voice speaking directly to Jesus, the language is used, not to anybody else. Think about this. This is something that the voice from heaven is only talking to Jesus. This isn't a booming voice meant for all to hear. This is for Jesus to hear. 
And then we get to verse 12. We're going to make, we're going to make these connections in one second. And the Spirit immediately, immediately, I, I guess it connotates like an immediacy, of course, but in Greek here, it is right away. Comes out of the water, and immediately the Spirit drove him out. Where? Into the wilderness. Again. We're skipping the birth narrative, because Mark, I said, doesn't really care about the birth narrative here. Right? That's not his point here. But he's setting up a difference between John and paralleling or setting it up with Jesus. Because now, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And if we've forgotten, three Greek words letter, basically, he was in the wilderness, 40 days, tempted by Satan. And it was with the wild beasts. And the angels waited on him. We get this same story and also Matthew and Luke. This is a different story. If you're familiar with this story, the main point of the story in Matthew and Luke is Jesus fasting, right? And, and the temptation around it. Do you see anything about Jesus fasting? It's almost, and the angels waited on him, but almost showed the opposite. Now it says tempted by Satan. But the main point is Jesus is almost passive in this story. He was in the wilderness. The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. In verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, so John was being out of the scene, as you know, John was beheaded eventually. He had prepared the way. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, or better yet, the time is being fulfilled. And the kingdom of God. It's the first time we get this phrase. It's a very, very common phrase in Mark and all the Gospels. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, depending on the Gospel. The kingdom of God has come here. Repent and believe in the good news. We look all the way back to Eden. This same wilderness language is never even close to being used. It doesn't mean that Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God puts us like, we need to go back to Eden. No, it's not. We're moving forward. Jesus' call wasn't to go back to Eden. But I do think it's important that there's no wilderness language in our, our creation narrative. But likewise, when we think about wilderness, I tend to think negatively. Wilderness is neutral. Wilderness is a time where God has met with his people. Think of probably the, the story you think of most is once they've escaped Egypt, they've crossed the Dead Sea, right? And that's it. And they, um, they're in the wilderness, right? They're in the wilderness. Now, they were supposed to be in a lot shorter time. They ended up being in the wilderness for like 40 years, right? We think of it being negative. Oh, they're in the wilderness. The wilderness is awful. The wilderness for Scripture, what is it? It's a place of reckoning with the divine. It's a place where you don't see what's in front of you. You don't know where your next meal is coming from. You don't know. You can't do it yourself. Catch this. All the wilderness language here. You're stepping out. You don't know. You don't know what this is going to be like. Is God going to provide the manna from heaven and the quail? Well, meal by meal, yes. But you don't have your stuff together. You can't see further down the line. Right? There's no, there's no pathway in front of you. There's no rented out things for your four-wheeler to go down. You've got to go through 
And you know what that creates? It creates trust. It creates that you have to trust in God. Now let me throw this out to you. I'm hopefully not being too heretical. What does it mean for God to step out into the wilderness? Maybe, just maybe, by God sending his son in Jesus, maybe, just maybe, that was God putting himself or herself in the wilderness. Yes, God created this earth, but he also created it as a place where we have free will. Jesus was fully God. He was also fully creep. When we think about covenant and covenant relationship, Christianity is one of the only religions where it's not a one-sided It is a two-sided relationship. Covenant relationship means that God walked through the sacrifices. If you think of the stories of the Old Testament. God is in covenant relationship with us. So I think all of us, post-fall, have to go through these wilderness experiences where we're not in charge. Being in charge is only a falsity, really, if you think about it. None of us are actually in charge of the feeling of being in control. To truly be a follower of Christ, we have to put our arms out and say, God, I can't do this by myself. For me, as a rule follower, I want to see that pathway through. I want to see exactly what's happening in front of me. I don't want to go to the wilderness where I have to completely rely on God. But that's the call. That's the call. And I think that's what God did when Jesus was sinned. It's almost like a wilderness thing. God protected, yes, and, and we could we could talk for hours with theological ramifications of sending your son to this earth that has been given free will to act as it chooses at some point. But God decided to show us that relationship, that covenant, that love by sending his son. So for us, as we're in this Christmas season, whether we are in a place that we are truly in the wilderness, that you might say, I don't know what's happening next week. I cannot see the pathway. I cannot see the trail. Or we have a projection of what it could look like. I just ask each of you and myself especially to remember that we're not in control. God doesn't want us ever to be in control. And God is ushering in the kingdom of God. Ushering in the kingdom of heaven. And maybe, just maybe, wilderness is somewhat a part of that too. Because it's about trusting you. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the challenge that wilderness sometimes brings. And it's uncomfortable. We don't necessarily want to be in a wilderness type place. The Lord, as you began your ministry according to this gospel, you were sent right out to the wilderness. As you came as a helpless baby, you had to rely on your mother 
with bonded river foods to provide sustenance so that you would grow. Help us to always rely on you, God. All we do. Amen.